those who are in debt mm-hmm. when they're young, outside of college debts, mm-hmm. I don't understand why <laughs> how you can get there, All right? Unless you have a lavish lifestyle where you are going out, uh, I don't know, I mean, you spend a bit too much time on the massage parlors, I like to joking and <laughs> say. Other than that, I, what are you doing? I mean, in Malaysia, our, our lifestyle is actually still pretty cheap. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six-Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.com firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firl.co slash free. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Firel Podcast, best place for long-term stock investors. Now today we have a very interesting guest. He is a former corporate man at SAP. He's also a former entrepreneur, founded uh, at least two companies and is currently a full-time investor. Now, uh, actually, John, I want to start off with this first, right? Mm-hmm. How do you meet our guest today? Who, by the way, is Mr. Changi Fong. Yeah, so I had the pleasure of meeting him um, yeah. when we were at our previous company. All right. And um, we actually had the pleasure of him sharing his um, mm-hmm. investment research methodologies to a, a, a group of uh, fellow investors. Mm. And uh, I interacted with him um, a lot during that time. Uh, I think it was December 2018, right? Was that, Chang? Uh, somewhere around there. Yeah, somewhere. Around. And, and um, you know, um, really valued his insights, uh, his ways of uh, looking at data sets. Right. And, and that's that's how, how I got to know him better, actually. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, yeah. today, for sure. Yeah. And so, uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Mr. Chang Yifong. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. Do you prefer your full name, Yifong, Chang, which, which do you prefer? Uh, anyone's found me. Usually, everybody calls me Chang. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Chang. Mm-hmm. Uh, glad you could be here. Now, actually, what I think the first thing I really want to dig into today is your experience, experience in the corporate world mm-hmm. and then transitioning into entrepreneurship. So, maybe you can spell to me what that process was like, what were some of the learnings that you've gotten out of that experience? Well, the corporate world, I frankly worked um, right out of a uh, military college. My first official job outside within the first six months was working with SAP Malaysia. And I worked there uh, for about eight years. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, I left SAP Malaysia in 2008 and then Worked for two years as a um, uh, SAP consultant mm-hmm. independently for, with other companies. Uh, after that, I just didn't I just didn't want to work in that field, mm. and I went independent on my own. I see. So, uh, what the question was? Well, uh, the transition. I was the motivations behind the transition. For example, into entrepreneurship. Into entrepreneurship. SAP. Yeah. Well, I guess the main reason is is I just want to do things my way right comparatively I, I don't want to deal with uh, um, the corporate environment is 
it's it's its own animal. It's its own way of uh, the people inside have their own way of handling people and their own styles. I worked in the uh, what we call the tech support element field. I worked. I, I started off basically as an assistant and then just worked all the way up to senior and management level on that field. But frankly, I, I was not a. I I I did well in it. Mm-hmm. Did very well, but I just didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it was one of those where I, uh, my idea of professionalism, if you got to do a job, you do it fine. But mm. whether long term I want to do this or want to find my own path in life, it was an easy answer. I wanted to go find my own path in life. What I, I wanted to do. I wanted my own independence from what these uh, people were doing. Um, I enjoyed my time in in whatever field I worked in, even in SAP. And then I worked at um, uh, Akakwana mm-hmm. with their IT tech team, team also. I enjoyed those times. I just find myself just not enjoying uh, uh, the corporate need to, to follow their procedures and standards. Oftentimes it annoyed me. Mm-hmm. I can, uh, I find the inefficiency and waste which I understand is normal in a corporate world, is something I detest mm. and loathe, mm. because I came from a background where inefficiency and waste could harm people's lives. I see. Or could get people hurt, and if you, and just seeing that, just being brushed off and not, and and basically uh, given a very, uh, a very cursory viewpoint by a lot of people just was just I think for me was the was the small little flame that made me decide no this is not a want, what I want I right. continue so so then you transition into you know before the podcast we're talking about this uh, you founded two businesses right uh, what I wanted to do I thought I would do is I, I would try something new mm-hmm. uh, first I wanted to I wanted to try uh, uh, events management. Mm-hmm. In this case, I thought something nobody has done in this country, which is uh, 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 games, uh, uh, game conventions, mm-hmm. like what they have in America, like, like Marvel uh, Con or something like that. Is it? No, there's no. That's that's Comic Con. It's Comic Con. Sorry. Yes, San yeah. D- SDCC, San Diego Comic Con. Yeah, and, and stuff like that. But uh, for games, that would be things like uh, Penny Arcade Expo or uh, Gen Con. In America, these are different things. They run tabletop games and also uh, digital games and electronic games. And the, those are people come to play. They don't just come right, to just okay. interact with the stars and play. It's like cot games and all these other yeah. things, right? Because okay. um, during my hobby during these times, when I uh, during my free time when I was working in the corporate world, was right. just any type of tabletop games. I see. And those things, I, I use those as a kind of like a... Uh, it was my hobby. Right. It was a. Uh, it was a. I considered it as a very good type of hobby for me because it was a, one of those where I had social interaction with people, mm-hmm. and at the same time, it was, it, helped center me. Mm-hmm. It was a. It's a form of centering. It helped center me in, in stressful times. Mm. Right. I mean, um, I, as a joke, I say to my friends is that I for, uh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, which mm-hmm. is something I played since I was eight years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have the original books I bought wow. from Dungeons and Dragons, which is impressive as it is. But what I found impressive was I, I took those with me through 
several moves. I, I moved from America to Singapore, Singapore to Malaysia, Malaysia to back to America, America to uh, God knows where I was deployed, mm-hmm. and, and uh, then back to uh, America, then uh, to Malaysia. That was, and, and taking those books from place <laughs> to place to place, they're, they're worn. They're, they're, they obviously look like they've been used, but I to me, they've been like, I, it was one of those where I, I kind of look at them and say, oh, well, in very bad times, they kept me centered. So I wanted to have that type of sense of community for people mm. here in Malaysia, the, the, the for gamers, because I knew the community existed. I wanted to try out to see if we can get them all uh, to build some event where they could all come and just meet other people about it. Um, the event I ran for itself, MagaCon, I ran it for two years. Uh, that was my first uh, business outside of uh, SAP. Mm-hmm. I it, I wouldn't say it was a failure, but I did lose a lot of money on it. I think I spent about half a million amount of money on mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. A loss, total loss. Wow. Yeah, I mean the 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 thing was is like I uh, the the conventions that were successful. We did have attendees and people did enjoy it and wanted to continue and it grew. Mm-hmm. It's just that. Long term wise, I had to take a look at my finances, and I was already married with, and my kids were already starting to. Uh, my this was around the time when I had um, a second one that came out, right. and I was thinking, and I had my wife and I had a long talk and discussion about it. it boiled down to no, the the whatever money I'll eventually theoretically earn from running the successful convention, mm-hmm. it's going to take a long time, right? And in between. Am I going to risk my financial stability of my family and me for this event? So I had to finally just cut it out, take accept the loss, and clear out the um, close down the company, and then move into something that is uh, a little bit less risky, but also still falls into some what I thought would be my interest in this case, still in the game tabletop game community. Mm. So uh, afterwards, I ran. A, I opened a, my own game store uh, called Weir Games and Hobbies. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's located down uh, actually quite near the studio in uh, Subang Jaya. Okay. Ah, okay. SS15. Right. Okay. So I ran that for five years. Uh, I we I did very well on it. I learned a lot of things. Just I also uh, okay. What are some of the big ones? You know, you would say. Well, I learned about how inventory management is so key and how successful retail business chain is. Mm. Like knowing how to 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 manage it correctly, knowing okay. what is the turnover rate for not just the inventory as a whole, but for individual items. And then knowing that, keeping that in stock, while at, at the same time keeping the capital in play, the, the amount of money that is, uh, or what we call uh, uh, just... Working capital? No, not just working capital, but uh, the 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 uh, the relationship you have. Oh God, my brain went uh, empty for a minute. When you have um, suppliers, yeah, it's your suppliers. You have you have to pay them within a certain date. Yeah, credit cash terms, terms, yeah, credit credit terms. The, the credit terms with your suppliers. Right. Working uh, how to negotiate for better ones, how to work out those credit terms, and then understand how. To use those to your advantage mm, in regards right. to to uh, timing of your payments, and those are those. That was a very good lesson. That uh, already I had done a lot of a of a investment before that, 
but working, uh, having my own store and understanding how inventory was such a big critical factor in my success has given me a perspective of, of when I look at companies and investing is also looking at assets and inventory ratios. Mm. Um, uh, I talked to a local uh, investment, I wouldn't say guru, but he writes his own uh, blog, putting recommendations, uh, Tr- uh, Troy Volk. Oh, Capital, right, right. Jonathan, Jonathan Troy. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan, Jonathan Troy. Troy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, him and I, we had uh, uh, him and I in contact sometimes. Mm. And we, for me and him, it's uh, at, at, we're both at a certain level of talk and discussion. And, and I enjoy my discussions with him mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. we're not talking at a lower level investment. Right. We're, we're actually going like, okay, now we are talking about uh, which ones do we consider more important in say the balance sheet mm. like for me i prioritize inventory control over um cash flow control mm. he this is one of those it's a very minor point of dis, uh, di- uh, difference between us mm-hmm. but but at a high level it's not that big of a deal but right. it does Maybe it might mean the difference between one or us going into different directions when it comes to which stocks we both uh, decide are good or bad. Mm. So uh, drive a little bit deeper and explain to us like why is, I mean, of course you got that experience from running the company, mm-hmm. but why is it, why is inventory management absolutely crucial for business? It, for me, I look at it as, um, uh, Originally, before I ran my business, I inventory t- turnover rate was to me one of those where you just look at it and go, okay, as long as it's healthy, it's uh, within a reasonable turn rate, mm. uh, you can, then the company will be doing well. Mm. But ha- running my own business, then I started to realize that inventory turn rate, especially when it comes to industrial standards, tells you how much more efficient is the company compared to their competitors. Mm-hmm. Like uh, one thing, him, uh, Choi and I, John Choi and I, yeah, kind of <laughs> discuss about is uh, I gave him an example about say airlines. Mm-hmm. Airlines theoretically don't have inventory Correct. that much, but yet Southwest Airlines, which everybody now, at least for professional investors, look as the high watermark of the gold um, standard, uh, uh, the benchmark comes, yeah, one to. Uh, investing in airline companies or anything in that manner in the business what is it that made them so good at their businesses and i one thing i like to bring up um well forever since the beginning southwest had one of the best inventory turnover rates uh for any of the airline companies theirs was 47 compared to industrial standards of i think barely 10 oh yeah that 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 should already give you a hint that they knew how to do their business better. Mm. Maybe there was cap. Uh, if you look at cash flow and and stuff like that, that also points in that direction. But if you look at cash flow, uh, turnover rate, cash flow turn rates, and then you look at inventory turn rates, and if you see both are healthy, if you see a higher inventory turn rate, and say a much better inventory turn rate with nearly equal cash flow between say one company, company A compared to company B, let's just say both company A and B both have same cash flow turn rate, but inventory control uh, turnover rate for company A is higher compared to inventory uh, to company B, B. then 
what is then it would it, it's one of those things that would trigger me to say what is it about uh, company A that they're doing good better yeah um, it's sticking out right like so yeah why, why is it sticking out so much better if they're using the same amount of cash and yet they're able to get more stuff around turn around mm. than uh, their competitors then what mm. is it they're doing right or, or is it what are they doing wrong mm. and uh, if you then average out for an entire industry then you can generally then you would find the more efficient ones obviously uh, some industries inventory turnover rate is more critical than other industries like um, like say compare 7-Eleven yeah. to their competitors like uh, Family New, Mart Family, Family Mart my news uh, John Choi and I had discussed that mm. and he uh, and for me um we look at i would look at say industry turn rates mm. what, what is the average for the industry first mm. and uh for uh these retail convenience stores uh if you and uh i don't just we don't just you shouldn't just look at say uh local within the industry global. for say you should look at global That's what right. would be the inventory and for me one of the things i'm almost in agreement with him was we he recently had a recommendation i think on his uh, blog, right? yeah, on uh, my news. Yes, yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, we went in deeper in discussion because that's where that one went into our discussion on inventory turnover rate. And he, and I asked him, what was it, the turn rate for my news compared to say uh, Family Mart, Family Mart or Seven Eleven? Right now, it's not so good. Mm. But the guy is working his butt off, and I say, well, if when they hit a good inventory turn rate, then great. But what struck me about our local industry, at least in the retail uh, convenience store sectors, is that 7-Eleven itself, I do not feel is doing very good, even mm. though it is number one. Mm -hmm. Why? Uh, for me, the reason why I was looking at industry standards globally, inventory turnover rate for retail convenience stores is uh, average out to eight, whereas 7-Eleven here in Malaysia is six. Yeah. Eight point something. Mm. And to me, that is like, they're less efficient here than globally. That to me shows that they're not doing they're not doing the job so well. Mm. Maybe uh, there's lots of excuses. There's lots of reasons, but I kind of feel like this is one of those where uh, this seems to me indication that they're not. They're just. Uh, uh, I think the best word is. Uh, coasting through they're just mm -hmm. mm. they're just coasting just chugging along they're just coasting on the wave right. they're not really doing anything innovative they're not doing anything they're just doing some they're just doing what everybody told them the rest <laughs> of the company everybody else is doing except maybe better they use their name for um, right. they use the fact that oh we're 7-eleven we got this much capital uh, advantages we got all this to basically Branding give, and to give them the benefits that give them good inventory but uh, maybe the management isn't negotiating as well mm. with the local. Uh, they're not negotiating as hard, or uh, they're not managing their inventory as strictly as they should they compared could. to the rest globally. Mm. Right. Like say somewhere in Japan, or say uh, when they got better com competitors in Korea, mm. or even like say uh, Australia, all these other areas where they're much more uh competitive and much yeah. and they have a much more they manage the inventory better so 
That would be a criteria. Mm. That, that's I say uh, I would say one of the criteria that I've learned through the years that I would, on a personal level, I would select as a uh, as something that would make me go okay. That would be an interesting point that would trigger me to go deeper into research into a company. I see. Right. Okay. So going back to your your this company that you were selling, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was it to do with toys and games? Is that right? Yeah, Second miniature one? war games. Uh, Warhammer 40,000 was our main uh, product line, uh, you know, uh, Games Workshop products. I think our editor used to play that, right? <laughs> Warhammer 40, 40K. So w- why uh, why is it that you decided to cash out of the business? Because you did mention uh, previously, uh, before the podcast that you, was, you, you sold off the business. Yeah, yeah. What, was, what was the reason? Since uh, you, it seems like you were enjoying it, you, it was profitable. You know, why, why is that the case? Uh, my third son was born. Okay, I see. And my wife and I are not the type that really, we're not comfortable with maids in our house. I right. see. I see. We want to raise our children. I, I'm too Americanized, I think, when it comes right. to uh, how you should raise your children. And to me, the idea of raising children with a, a servant or a helper is, I don't feel that is a, I'm doing my job as a parent if I'm, mm. I let them do that. Right. So I, um, and the other thing was, yeah, it made money, uh, but compared to how much I earned investing, Compared right. to how much I earned, uh, just working the number of hours I spent working in the store and how much money that's coming in, it was a no-brainer. I see. I could spend more hours doing my research and investing and make more money there than uh, the number same number of hours I did in the store. The store was doing great. I, we were getting an average of about uh, thirty to forty percent growth on average on sales wow. every nice. year. And then later on, after sales growth, what I learned was Inventory control help reduce my sales. Mm. That's one. Mm-hmm. But my meaning my total sales was down. Okay. Right. But my profit had skyrocketed to fifty percent because I had managed my inventory better. I see. Holding costs and everything else is Yeah, because yeah. what I learned to do was I had I had learned to make it so that I didn't have too much inventory on the store while at the same time maintaining the reputation that we had everything we needed on the store. I see. We had just so because at that point I realized using uh, uh, market research and trending and and understanding where it went, I then realized how much I need to have of each product on I the see. shelf exactly instead of just going on a a uh, throw everything, buy everything, and, and buy five of everything. Mm. Now I can say now knowing what is my average sales and what is the turnover rate of each. It, it wasn't just I I didn't just calculate the broad turnover rate. I learned. Okay, this product I sold on average three a month. Okay, or every quarter I would uh, sell about four of them. So I only and since it, it uh, I make an order every month. Do I need to keep five in the store? Mm. Yeah. Uh, if and when I, if I had a whale come into the store and say he needed ten of those, uh, what I uh, what I could uh, then those rare whales it could be. Uh, what I've learned to do is also in the relationship category with other stores is uh, what I would do is I can contact them and say, okay, I'll buy those extra units of this item out of this, out of you guys or trade for this or work something out. Having that relationship allowed it so that I could fulfill the contract. Then at the same time, 
maintain just enough inventory without right. extra costs. I cost. see. Was there any product obsolescence in things that you sell? There, there was no. Yeah, on the what we had was a uh, paint. I see. Those did dry up after so many years. I see. But that wasn't an issue because the paints was uh, and uh, what, and glue was one of those with a very what we call ancillary products, mm. like how uh, AirAsia has their own ancillary products. Uh, in those instances, those an- the turnover rate for the ancillary products was very high. I see. Uh, especially on certain colors, we knew certain colors would go very fast, so we didn't need to keep that much. We knew right. uh, what which one to stock up and which which ones wasn't. So we uh, had a, and we had, uh, we 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 knew what was the right amount. I see. Generally, close. We got close. Okay. Not perfect, but but more than that, then we learned ways to also work out a markdown on inventory. Like uh, when we run events, we would just give away paints as prize. Ah, ah those paints were just hey, you guys, sense. you know, yeah. the ones that were already kind of going into the. We would include the paints that were already coming close to obsolescence or just coming close to their drying age, like those who's been in the shelf for two years. Then we include that into with paints that were obviously in demand. I see. Put them together into one one pile and just. Uh, give them away as prize, and then uh, my supplier, what, what Games Workshop as a supplier has a uh, uh, what they call promotional uh, inventory level or promotional things that you can mark down from your inventory. Okay. So what we did was then we just marked those off as promotional items or or or, or gifts or uh, prize items, and then just get our money back for those. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. I know it's a little bit annoying, but I want to tell you something that I think can be really helpful to you. I can tell you're really interested in the stock market and want to learn more about it so that you actually know what you're doing, especially when today things are getting more complex and complicated. That's why we came up with the Stock Investing Blueprint or SIB. It's our signature e-learning program that teaches you how to pick the right stocks most of the time, buy and sell it at the best possible time and manage your stock portfolio systematically. It currently has more than 10 hours of content and it's growing. You'll also be part of a group of like-minded investors that can help speed up your learning process. To hop on the program, click on the link in the description or go to learn.viral.co slash courses Slash SIB. I see. Mm. I, I'm actually very curious, being the technical guy, how did you manage all this? Was it was it because maybe because of your SAP background, you did you write a customized software to do inventory management or you just worked Excel. it out, out of Excel? Yeah. yeah. I, I worked it out of Excel. A wow. spreadsheet. I just used spreadsheet. Wow. I mean okay. we had a lot of products, but uh there was a lot of days where I'm sitting around the store, especially during the afternoons when we open, when people don't, when our major customers don't come in until maybe after office hours. I see. So what am I going to do during the time? Well, I'm not going to sit around just, uh, I don't know, surfing for porn on the internet. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, so I think you given us a very good glimpse of an, an aspect of your, uh, the way you look at investing. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can paint a picture for me. What, is your investing philosophy? Know the business. Know the industry is really my the deepest philosophy I can give to people. I mean, uh, I like the research. Mm-hmm. I like going into details about a company and business. 
and I like uh, going um, if I can just a deep dive. I've I when I was younger, I I, I gave I, I would I, I realized my grades. Looking back, I was one of those students that if I had an interest in the topic or a subject, I would have the highest marks. Mm. If I didn't. My parents could not beat me enough to make me <laughs> do the homework. Yeah, you know, and I realized that also with my children. So thank God I, I had my my own personal example to learn that. So I don't try to just throw that at them. I see. Right. I I do understand you appreciate history a lot. Is that correct? Yeah, history is one subject that has always interested me a lot. Uh, I studied as much as I could, as deeply into it as many uh, areas. Uh, it, it is dangerous because there's so many rabbit holes That's right. to go yeah. into when it comes to history on many areas and subjects. But it is one of those where if you can understand the broader uh, the, the in details, it also, you can also understand the broader terms. So what's one rabbit hole you're looking down right now? <laughs> uh, gambling, actually. Ah. Mm. Oh, yeah, I remember. He spoke on Kuz's right. uh, podcast about gambling. Yeah, I've been uh, learning about the community advantage play community, as they call themselves, the ga- right. professional gamblers. Right. The and, But one thing I, I found interesting from that rabbit hole is uh, um, what you can then, as an investor for gambling, what you could then learn to uh, give you an advantage in research was... You can easily find out what it, how well is say something some a company a casino is doing mm. on a weekly basis. Okay. Mm. Wow. Well, yeah, it's very easy. At least in America mm-hmm. and UK, especially in America, because America uh, gambling casinos or casinos, whatever any type of gambling system, outside of the Indian reservation ah. casinos, have to follow the state regulations, which comes from Las Vegas, which are almost all a copy of the Las Vegas, uh, Nevada uh, regulations, gambling license codes. Okay. And one of their codes is that any gambling casinos have to basically give a uh, report on a weekly. Oh, so they basis. have to disclose. And it's uh, a public disclosure, it's public record that you can mm. find in the uh, state's uh, gambling uh, um, commission's websites or in their state's uh, government website. Wow. Yeah, so like say uh, Resort World uh, Catskills, and Resort World New York, which are the two biggest ones for uh, Genting in mm-hmm. um, uh, in New York. You just go to New York Gov website, and you can easily get a PDF copy of their latest weekly, of uh, how much they're making, how much uh, they have to make. And by law, they have to basically put those uh, the reports in a level that's simple enough that generally pub- general public can understand. Wow. So it cannot be, oh, uh, they they throw in say uh, forty market units of sales or something like crap. Yeah, they need something to hide their numbers. And this mm. is actually no. They they have to say, well, we went through this much turnover on slot machines. Wow, and so this much even, on tabletop games. Even on table baccarat uh, to roulette. They Those uh, fall in the uh, tabletop games. I uh, see category. Slot machines are video game VGT or like a video game t- technology or, so, or table or something. I I don't remember what is the right. exact term off the top of my head, but okay. you will know how much they're making on slot machines. Wow, how much they have to give out, pay out, because by law the slot the video slot machines have to have a certain payout. Uh, um, they, they they cannot go below a certain payout ratio. I see. Like uh, 80% total uh, internal or some or 90% or something like that. Uh, 
Is it because the uh, uh, legislation is requiring them to disclose more for taxation purposes and, 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 and that's why the disclosure is so, in a way, transparent? Uh, I think that is a big contributing factor mm-hmm. that they have to disclose how much they are earning. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because one of the excuses all casinos go around when they go to state governments is that, well, we give you more taxes, <laughs> so let us open a casino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would think that that is a uh, that that was that does contribute to the fact that they have to basically open put the all books. this <laughs> right. keep their books open. And so if you get so you literally you you have the you can know how much Genting is at least getting. Uh, from Resol- their, their all the, the from all their at least U.S., U.K., and even I think uh, that's the majority My, of their casinos. Yeah, outside of Genting, and you can, that would be what seventy-five, eighty. I don't know, sixty percent of their total revenue. I don't think they do this kind of disclosure for the Malaysian operations now, do they? Uh, I have not really sat down and studied how the Malaysian gambling codes are. Mm-hmm. It would not surprise me if it is very outdated and very. Uh, I'll. I'll, I'll the, the, there isn't anything really specific, and it might not even be any for taxation purposes. I see, yeah. And because well, there's only one. Yeah. And I don't know how. I I I, my underst- I remember Genting Lim Tong and Genting opened up kind of really early when our country was still. That's right. Yeah. Very at the birth of our country's independence. Uh, so it's probably you're talking about easily about 50, 60 years ago. So we're looking at I think in in Genting's case, at least the casino in Genting, you would not have. Uh, the same amount of details. Um, whether we should, they sh- the the government should be implementing this type of policy or not, that's not for me to decide. Of course. Sure. Uh, but I don't know if this policy exists. I it would not surprise me if there isn't no such policy because yeah. of gra- the fact that Genting is grandfathered and nobody. They're not going to open any other type of gaming license outside a lottery in Malaysia. Correct. Right. Yeah. So I mean, you you mentioned about understanding the business as a as the mm-hmm. cornerstone, right? If you're investing in philosophy, mm-hmm. was it something that you knew from the beginning, or something that you had to learn yourself? Made a few mistakes along the way, and then you're like, aha, yeah, understanding business is really important. It was from the very beginning. It was the Peter Lynch's method. I already said in the, the previous mm-hmm. uh, podcast or the the YouTube video I did with a. Uh, um, Chuang was uh, that uh, I've always my first book was Peter Lynch's book which mm-hmm. was study the business right and so, that's never been I, I, I never changed from that I, I I don't read up on all these other numbers that uh, the Wall Street financial right. news fintech I, I don't read those as much as I, I would study the business so, I mean, the book came out, I believe, in the 70s or the 80s? 80s. Eighties. 90s. 90s. 99. 99, is it? The first 80, one? 89 was the first book. Right. Okay. Or 80s. It was in the 80s, right. late 80s. It was after the uh, the the, uh, uh, the the Wall Street crash of 87. 87, right. Yeah. Okay. It was after the Wall Street crash, but not too long afterwards. Okay. So, it's been a while since then. Would you still recommend people to read it? Yeah. Why not? So what what are the what are the top two top three reasons why why is it that that book is so important to you and for everyone else? Yeah. Uh, what has people keep telling me that the investment world has changed? Mm-hmm. There's uh, mm-hmm. all these others. Yes, I'm sure on a daily level, mm-hmm. 
your uh, the 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 stock will go up and down uh, based on all sorts of reasons, technical reasons. And if you people want to, uh, they get excited. They want to see. They want to make money when it's up, and then make money when it's down. Right. Uh. But long term wise, uh, thirty years, ten years, five years, even two years. When you're uh, the 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 stock will eventually hit a price, mm. and that's based on its business. Mm. That has almost been. It's a law. It's almost a law. Would you it's say it's almost the closest thing you have to an actual reality of the f- of the business of investment. That eventually the business, once you understand it, will do well, and mm. if it does well, the pri- the stock price will go up. But in between stock prices will fluctuate immensely. There will be a massive variance mm. um, due to how the Wall Street, uh, the financial world is now structured and the fact that the, we have all this technology integration, people need to feel a need to have a constant update of these things mm. and, and uh, constantly make money during the fluctuation. So we have a different investment style and philosophy that is totally opposite of what I had already learned. Mm. And frankly, that law, which is businesses will do, their business will either do well or not Mm -hmm. based on many factors, their management, what type of business they're in, how well they run their business, how well they are doing uh, themselves, that has not changed from 40 years ago. That's how Warren Buffett ran things. That's how Benjamin Graham looked at it. Yep. It's what's that's a hundred years now, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So So um, you know, having invested for more than a decade, right? Or two decades. More than a decade, two decades. Thirty years now. I started when I was like almost thirty years. I started when I was fifteen. Right. I started I read the book when I was around thirteen, fourteen years old. What was right. your first stock? Do you remember? Yeah, do you uh, I recommended first my first stock to my mother was True Tech in uh, nineteen ninety six, I can't remember. It was around there. Ah, right, right before right before the financial crisis. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> yeah, so my mom lost about forty thousand dollars, right. forty thousand ringgit on my own recommendation, mm-hmm. which sucked. <laughs> but True Tech was for me uh, an example of me reading uh, all these like PE ratios, uh, technical analysis techniques, and then using that to to base my investment off of those. Mm-hmm. And not understanding his business, mm. which was not very strong at the time, mm-hmm. and so I frankly deserve to be to have, uh, to have uh, that loss. Mm-hmm. It hurt that it was my mother. I mean, maybe it was good that my mother was uh, uh, was my mother, so she wasn't. She didn't like come in. Uh, like other people, if you invest other people's money, they'll come back at you. You lost me money and stuff like that, <laughs> right, that situation. Yeah. But it it was an eye-opener for me that this is not the way to invest. Mm. Right. Uh, you, that This book that my father provided for me is the path I should be following when it comes to invest, and it has never changed. I see. Well, how, how would you recommend people to improve their skills of understanding businesses? Because... That literally, uh, I, I was hearing a podcast, they're saying that I think there's close to 2,000 books written on Buffett, right? And everybody's like throwing Buffett out. only gave one investment advice. Yeah. In, oh, I mean, he's given out lots of investment advice, but he's only given out one, one in advice on what subject to learn mm-hmm. in regards to investment. 
Do you guys know what it is? Uh, enlighten us. He History? just said accounting. Oh, okay. Learn accounting. Mm. Because that is the language of the business. Mm. Right. That is where you understand how the money moves and flows inside a business and how the business accounts and, and tells it what it is. Mm. Accounting is understanding where those numbers are. Okay. Forget all the... I mean, the... Um, too many times nowadays, the companies, uh, uh, when they come out their annual report, they, the, the books are just thick, yeah. massive, yeah. and frankly, I, uh, I don't like reading it. Have you seen the latest integrated reporting kind of standards? It's even more fluff, actually. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't study it. I, I go back to just going back to the original top four balance sheets, uh, profit and loss, um, a cash flow statements, mm. and then maybe read. The, I'll read the notes. The notes are very important. Yeah. Those I read, uh, and maybe occasionally I'll read. The, uh, I would do keyword searches if I'm finding something in the industry, like in Dufu's case, mm-hmm. I did a keyword search on there uh, when I I opened it on my computer. I did a keyword search looking for. Um, Helium, case, right? Yeah, helium drives. I, yeah. I I was doing that as uh, well. I assume after you mentioned it, I was like, hey, let me check it out. And I think they only mentioned it, I think, a couple of times in the past 10 years. Something like that. I think it was like 2015 yeah. or 2016. Yes. So and that, that small little... It's just yes, but they were the only ones that mentioned right. it compared to everybody else. Correct. That's right. Okay, okay. So now, okay, so accounting, let's talk about it. So you mentioned earlier on, right, ter- uh, inventory turnover. That's something that you look at. I mean, so, um, go back. Uh, let's go back a bit because I did say accounting as right. in learn accounting. Mm. I took that advice to heart and I actually took an accounting degree. I got an LCCI certification. Oh, mm. uh, this was during your time at SAP or after that? This oh. is after. I this see. is during my free time, kind of like in between while I'm, uh, while I'm running my businesses. I also took a LCCI degree. Did, did it help you immensely in, um, in uh, your investing? Yeah, it did. It helped me understand that where they, how these guys account for the money. I what see. They, what is money coming in? What do they do? out, And it helps me understand. Uh, I, I didn't take the an LCCI audit degree mm-hmm. or anything on auditing, but it did get me understanding where auditors would start looking mm. and where those money came, like what would be receipts and I see. What, what are the things that they they move to hide the money. Okay. Mm. Okay. So, so speaking of accounting, right? What are some of the things that you look at um, that you like to see first when you come into contact with these financial statements? So you mentioned earlier on a little bit about t- uh, inventory turnover. If you can, the product, the specific product turnover. So, is there anything that what what other things do you do you look at when it comes to accounting? Obviously, the usual cash flows, right. uh, P and Ls, uh, and and how close is that related to cash flows, because. PNL is uh, the reason why the PE ratio, as you talked about, why it, it, it was originally popular in my experience was uh, and grew out of favor mm-hmm. with investors. Right. Was too many companies uh, then started doing little financial tricks yeah. in the books to increase their PE ratio. Especially yeah. because of accrual accounting as well, I guess. Uh, there's a lot of things that comes into it and that's where I find inventory management helps mm. in uh, understanding it because uh, let's just take um, what was uh, there was a uh, uh, in America there was a case re- uh, on donuts what was the name uh, Krispy Kreme donuts okay, okay. they uh, was eventually investigated for fraud or something in financial reporting because they were um, 
um, basically upping their numbers before they sold. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and what they did is they basically, um, I, th- I I can't remember. Uh, there was a YouTube video you can search about it. On okay. Krispy Kreme donuts, uh, 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 history and financial freedom, something. There's somebody who did a report on it on the YouTube. And it boiled down to they, uh, they would push the products or push the uh, the stuff to their retailer since it's a franchise. Ah, okay. They would push the things straight to the franchisees just before the quarters out. I just to make the numbers look good. Yeah. Okay. And then when then the, obviously the franchisees come back and and stuff like that, so it makes their quarters and their years look good at the last minute. Mm. And if you have a good idea of inventory management and control, you could see that, uh, well, the inventory turnover rate on that would represent that. It was very low. I see. Or maybe too high or, or maybe too, uh, it just seemed kind of quirky, especially. What about businesses that don't actually, like, I mean, companies like SaaS companies, how, how do you account for that if it's in absence of inventory action? Like what type of companies? Mm, probably, let's just say, uh, SaaS-based, cloud-based kind of companies. What, how would you... They still have inventory. In terms of storage space, yeah. in terms of, yeah. So in a way, hmm, is there any business that you've seen that does not have inventory and it's more difficult to evaluate? I have yet to see a company. There might be some companies mm-hmm. that have something that is not inventory based mm-hmm. uh even software based companies have some form of inventory in some way or another mm-hmm. uh but how uh what as i say is inventory isn't inventory turnover or control is not you can't do it in isolation mm. you have to do it in comparison to the rest of the industry understand so if it's an industry say a SaaS industry then you look at all the inventory turnover rates for the whole industry and then get an average out from there mm. and then you see which okay here's the average then what is the mean and variation variance and uh, um, of it and then look for those who have high variance from the mean and average mm. and then you then that will give you something to work with. I understand. Right. Yeah. So what is one um, number or a metric, right, that it's not used uh, popularly? So I, I know inventory turnover is one, mm-hmm. but what's one another one in your experience that you find to be really useful, but it's not that mainstream? Mm-hmm. HR, um, what I would like to do is how m- is employee uh, retention rates. Ah, and how do you do? And uh, usually, I mean, in in the US, you got companies like Glassdoor, right? But here in Malaysia, where would you scuttle about this kind of these sources of information for turnover rates, attrition rates? Mm, look at how much they're paying for HR on the HR on the uh, when they go to how much on their cost. Look at how much they pay for uh, their own staff. I see. And how much has it gone up or down? If it's actually steady mm-hmm. and stable throughout the years with some steady growth, that actually means that the company is growing and has a uh, can retain their employees. And at the same time, it, it, I don't mind growing uh, cost of uh, HR. Mm. Right. Mm. As long as the, the company itself is generally growing in the right direction. Okay. 
what I concerns me is companies that have very high turnover rates for their businesses on their HR, meaning you see a massive fluctuation in their uh, employees' uh, cost. I see on the HR level on the on on their um, accounting form. I see, and those show to me a very chaotic situation in the business. Those tell me that all right, uh, the companies would be. They're not retaining the staffing that needs to the 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 skills that they need to make their business efficient and well. Mm. Mm. Right. Speaking of, now, this is a slightly more uh, I would say a more advanced question that I you know having read a few annual reports myself, I noticed as well. So speaking of HR, so typically they would put the employee salaries and all that mm. uh, after gross profit, right? So basically, it's gross profit, and then they will talk about it. Uh, after that, mm-hmm. and then that affects the operating profit, usually. Some companies... Uh, gross or net? No, after. After, after gross. So you've got revenue. So you've got revenue, revenue then you get co- cost cops. of goods sold. Yeah, that is net. And then gross is actually after all the other stuff, I thought. No, it's no. revenue, gross, and then you have your operating expenses, and then operating, and then okay. taxes. Because to me, that... Because gross is a very specific... There's a very legal specific term for mm-hmm. it, because that... Um, uh, companies like uh, Hollywood businesses, right. accounting, that is one of those reasons why they end contracts when they get profit sharing. Just having the word net and gross mm-hmm. can mean millions of dollars, how much they pay a certain uh, uh, writer mm. or a certain contract to a certain star or to somebody. And if it's written down as net, then a lot of times the, the writers are... Uh, Shot changed? Yeah, if it's compared to gross. Mm. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I'm referring to Malaysian companies. Okay, gross. Okay, right. then we'll call it gross. Then. Right. So sometimes what they do is, okay, so for a lot of companies, they'll put it under operating expenses, so the mm-hmm. people. Yeah. So maybe some manufacturing companies for tech goods or whatever, they'll actually lump the salary of the people that they pay to manage maybe inventory or whatnot under cost of goods sold. Cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in those cases, right, uh, where they mix things up, what would your response be? That's a good question. For me, those type of companies, it seems to me that that sounds very funky. Mm. <laughs> that, that's very funky, unless there's a reason why they, uh, the industry would have to do it, unless because the employees are contract-based. It nah. sounds to me that they are contract-based. Uh, my guess is sounds to me like uh, companies that would do that would be those who have a lot of cheap labor on contract staff, mm. those who are foreign workers, like something like Top Glove. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those, that would be something they might do just to simplify their accounting. I see. But I disagree with doing something like that. Mm. And companies that do that makes me very... Uh, Uneasy? Uh, I would not. It would be one of those uh, that makes me uneasy to put in money in the company. I understand. Uh, yeah. What, what are the... Other scuttlebutt methods that you know we we had discussions before this chunk and one 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 that you enjoy was actually talking to people talking to people in yeah. the industry. Um, how do you in a way in, incentivize? I don't know if that's the right word. Incentivize them to actually sit down and, and share this with you from your experience. Are there people that say say no chunk? I'm not. I, I don't. I don't know you. I don't want to discuss this. I don't want to disclose this. And what would be your success factors that help you get this kind of information actually? 
anybody who says I cannot talk about it mm-hmm. or oh no, Jay, I'm not happy, it means that either they've got something hidden. Okay. That means they're doing fraud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or they are things aren't going so well in the company. Okay. Or they are either way it's it if they're very defensive about talking about their business and their company and how well is uh, about the, I, I'm, I'm not asking about how well they're doing. Mm. I'm asking about, so how do you do your business on a daily basis? What's, what's happening right now? Mm. You know, what do you do guys do? Like, okay. uh, like how do you, how do you get from point A to point B? How does this thing get manufactured from here? What are the costs that goes into that item? I see. Like if they are very reluctant, uh, unless outside of, if they're not get, I'm not asking for details. I try not to, I say, you don't have to tell me how much it costs exactly. Mm-hmm. But you can, but say, tell me like how if it's a big car, part of the cost for say rubber gloves is the nitrile material cost, or in uh, some gloves case would be like uh, the cotton lining used for the mm-hmm. gloves. Mm-hmm. How, um, the the cost of each individual glove is so many variable factors that you just having the guy tell me well, well, a large part of the cost is just say the is not the rubber cost mm-hmm. but uh, only rubber cost they say 30%. Okay. But my uh, say the 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 lining. Okay. The glove liners and uh, the fabric and all that costs 50% well. Well that's already that, that's already information. Okay. And if they don't want to just tell you that or they don't need to tell me the detail. I to see. say a big car cost is my glove. Okay. That already gives me a, a already a good head and start to go into finding out what's the price of cotton. Okay. What what would be in a way a balance of time for research? Meaning, uh, desktop research, reading, researching online, googling, and versus talking to on people. the ground. Stuff. Yeah, on yeah. the ground. What what would we you say would be a good balance? Actually, I don't have a good answer for that one. Okay. Uh, a lot of my research was literally just internet searches. Okay. Uh, um, occasionally, but uh, I do the social talking with people because uh. Because I'm afraid of uh, getting too deep into research into a rabbit right. holes. I see. So not, it's not because I I, I go into uh, there's too much uh, I, I do too much. Uh, there, there's no balance. There's just I know that sometimes I can get too deep into a subject, mm-hmm. and if I don't get myself outside of it mm-hmm. by having human contact, I would go. I would not be a very uh, good person. <laughs> okay, understand. <laughs> so yeah. I don't have any. I don't have a perfect answer. Like the casino issue, yeah. I, I, the information I provided for you was literally, I, I didn't interview a single person. I understand. Yeah. All, all this is literally just, you can just read it all up in the forum for gamblers. You can, it's all public records. Okay. But Do it's just, it's just you have to wade through a lot of information. Yeah. All right. Do you subscribe to any like... Uh, in uh, financial data or any newsletters that it, in a way gives you an edge or everything that you have researched so far has always been public and, and free? Outside of the previous companies you guys, that you guys worked for, in this case, Equities Tracker, no. Mm. All right. Uh, other so than that, I don't need to. I, I've, as, I, as I say, that, that industry now has diverged from my investment strategy. Mm. And because they do, it, it it to me is one of those I I don't want to deal with their stuff. Mm. And maybe I'm yeah, missing out money. Mm-hmm. I might literally be missing out money. That's the uh, but uh, maybe the difference is uh, I might 
maybe uh, it might mean I might have become a billionaire today or not. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not out to make so much money that, to be that level. Okay. Right. Sure. So I think it's very encouraging for a lot of us and the listeners uh, because there's a sense, especially in Malaysia, that uh, to get ahead requires special information, insider information. And where you're coming from, having the success that you've had, it's basically information that everyone has had. And that gave me this idea that actually it's not really about the information, it's about the analysis. Am I right to say that? Yeah, it's a, your ability to analyze the information that people have, that is out there. Mm. Like, uh, just just looking in the right direction or asking the right question. People will, look, it's always that that's the silly story of the elephant, you know, three blind men touching the elephant. One thinks is a tree, the other thinks is a the right. snake, the other thinks is a, I don't know, whatever. A rhinoceros. Or some task, crap yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's, um, for me, I, I just feel like what if one of them had a, for me, reading and, and doing research makes it so that I'm the guy with the one eye mm-hmm. in, those, in those blind guys looking at the elephant. So, speaking of research, I think another, uh, com- uh, in a way, complaint or excuse, I would call it, that a lot of people make is, that it takes up time and they don't know where to start and they don't want things to be aimless. They kind of want to be like, oh, uh, if I'm going to spend two hours, I better get something out of it. So what do you say to people who think and say things like that? What is their interest first? What are they interested in? What is their hobbies? Start with their hobbies. Um, What I think today is when I, people look at investment, uh, one thing I like about Trong when I watched this stuff online was that he was telling there are many other forms of investment outside of just uh, the stock market. Yep. Yeah, right. There are many other things. So uh, keeping an open mind mm. is important. So if people like to collect coins, yeah. isn't that an investment of a form already? Yep. Mm-hmm. Collecting coins. Uh, what about people who I, I just like to game? Yeah. Like those who played into uh, my game, uh, the Warhammer 40,000, if people were looking into Warhammer 40,000 stuff, you could have, if you lived in England or say you were an investor, you could theoretically have just opened an account in the UK mm. and bought uh, Games Workshop stocks mm. six years ago. Yeah. And you would have made, I think, seven times or even 10 or something. It was a, it's a lot of... Yeah. It's, it's not a small amount of money yeah. already from your return because in seven years, the Games Workshop stock has gone up a lot Yeah, in between that time and the fluctuation. You've gotten the dividends from it, which you can buy back more. Um, there, uh, the, the thing is, is that people are, are made to think that, oh, I'm supposed to be doing this boring stuff. Mm. But when it should be, what am I doing that I enjoy? Mm. Like if you enjoy eating... And look at what the restaurants are doing well. What oil are they using? Stuff like that. Yeah. Look what at companies like Calbee. Yeah. Like, like, like if you go to yeah. like uh, companies with people who are um, gastronomy, mm-hmm. gastronomic people, like right. who like to go around food eating. Lovers, food yeah. lovers. You know, foodies as the term, yeah, yeah. term is That's called. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, how I, I remember reading all these bloggers and uh, now YouTube uh, YouTubers and, and what they call themselves as influencers right, right. and all these foodies and influencers talking about, Oh, th- we went and ate at this restaurant or we went at that, ate that restaurant. My thought was, okay, so 
did you think about which one you liked and their services were good? Mm -hmm. And then thought about which company that they work for? Yeah. Did you, maybe you could invest in the restaurant yourself if it was a good restaurant. Yeah. Or the food was good. Or the barbecue sauce was good. Yeah. I mean, just uh, little things like that. Mm. And just, uh, uh, or uh, there's no, I I don't know about excuses. Mm. I know that uh, there are so many opportunities that have always been there that if you keep your eyes open, you can find it. Now, I know sometimes I think because I go into the weird rabbit holes, I sometimes go into areas that nobody, that when I mention it to people, which I thought was a natural thing for me to say, that, well, let's look into this area. Mm-hmm. I sometimes get uh, blank-eyed stares from people, They just which boils down to, huh? <laughs> How could you just think and realize this when I... Um, but to me, it just felt natural. I see. Right. Uh, the, uh, let's go back to collecting coins. Right. Mm. Like, uh, right now, I ask people, what are the, the, one of our biggest concerns right now in financial markets? I mean, it's, it's, it's an underlying concern, and you hear some people r- report it and talk about it. You see some financial YouTubers talk about it. There is a feeling of, something is about to change mm-hmm. not more than that where that all this printing of money mm-hmm. is dangerous where are we going to go with that all right my thinking is is that all right how do you uh, defend yourself against these this situation mm. how do you protect yourself what are the what is the research that you need to go into how do you hit yourself you mean how do you head yourself against hyperinflation? Mm. There's recorded history of that happening. Mm. What and what are the responses to protect yourself in hyperinflation situations in different countries? We had the Weimar Republic right. of Germany. Mm. We have uh, Venezuela right now. Zimbabwe. Yeah, and and what what did what do you what do we as individuals? How do we protect ourselves in that situation? What can you do? Mm. So Think, what can we do? What can we do? <laughs> Okay, I'll give you a suggestion. Um, I've read about it, and uh, there are some people who have talked about this. A guy named John T. Reed, he has his own Facebook page. He sells his own uh, uh, retail, uh, oh God, rental investment properties in America. Okay. Reviews and stuff like that. You can you can look him up if you want. Mm-hmm. But he, one of his advice was that his study was that one of the ways to protect yourself in hyperinflationary situation studying the past histories of it is that you're going to have to uh, is is a different currencies and de- having your cur- having your money saved into different type of currencies and different type of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, different um, valuable items so you, one of his recommendations is just basically park your money some of your money you don't need to park all of it but mm. some of it if you have enough now you have some of it park some of it in uh, in foreign currencies so that when the time comes you can at least use those foreign currencies to give you a decent living mm. through the hyperinflationary period because one thing is true about all hyperinflationary situation right now it never lasts mm. it's always a temporary situation before the governments finally clamp down and do something else to change it Venezuela is a special case because the government isn't really interested in uh, trying to make themselves better. They're trying to, they're barely trying to hold on to power. Mm. 
And even in those situations, you know about uh, Venezuelans going deep into cryptocurrencies. Yes, yes. So yeah. that is already one of the things they're already thinking. They're bringing, uh, they're investing into a different type of foreign currency. Currencies. So crypto, foreign fund, uh, foreign currencies like say Swiss, Swiss uh, francs, uh, uh, um, Singapore dollars, all that. That's one or Jap Japanese yen. I mean, these are um, one way. Another way is also uh, putting some of your uh, your your money into <clears throat> what they call species, uh, which is uh, commodity items. In this mm. case, like usually gold and silver, but mm. gold and silver are overpriced. But even though the price of gold and silver is already an indication that people are really distrustful of the current fiat system. In yes, the current fiat system. Right. So uh, you mentioned crypto, right? I want to get your thoughts on cryptocurrencies. Well, what are your general thoughts about it? Crypto was a situation where um, originally it was an answer without a problem. Mm -hmm. But as time wore on, it became the answer to an actual problem. Mm -hmm. And one of the, and one of the big problem is, is a massive distrust of people to the, the institutions right now. I'm not just talking about financial institution. I'm just talking about all institutions of the world from say government mm -hmm. federal institutions to the f to uh social institutions that have been uh, implemented around the world uh the 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 underlying the data as much as people like to to look into and say it's not there the the scale of distrust of all the institutions right now from wall street financial institutions to governmental institutions not just in america but also say uh say the global ones like uh, the, the, the world health organization mm. all that unhcr you know, all these is, is is a sign of uh, underlying things similar to what happened right. in the pre-world war one mm. and so when you have that distrust people will look for other means of of um something outside of that system i see and crypto was the it was an answer to that so hence you have um why crypto now is getting up to a higher level popularity it's not because uh financial institutions themselves have gotten into it. it's because people just distrust them period mm. Right. Mm. Dot, you know and that's why so-called cryptocurrencies that are backed by government, like say the Chinese cryptos and mm, right. Venezuelan cryptos and all those, never do well. Yeah, because they don't understand why people why crypto is popular, because they don't trust you. They want a decentralized system. In yeah, a, they yeah. want a decentralized. So, system. how about yourself? Where do you stand as in as as an investor? Yeah, as, as an a, investor. Uh, it's just crypto? among the many. Uh, I'm not that into crypto. Right. I mean, I am putting some money into it now, and yeah, it is exciting. But uh, I've I I it's it I I use it as hedge mm -hmm. right. in the situation. Mm -hmm. Just like there are other items that I use to hedge. Like uh, when I say species, I'm saying metal, mm. right? Anything that's metal. So I collect a lot of the old coins. I mm. see. I see. Is is it very difficult to to acquire them, especially in Malaysia, or do you have to? No, no. I'm not talking about rare valuable coins oh, okay. Just i'm talking about the normal ones oh. that we have right now that's okay. getting circulating our 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 penny our our 10 cents oh. i'm taking the old coins 
Oh, all the okay. coins. You know, when you were we were mentioning on Chuang's, I was like thinking, you know, the some Caribbean, yeah, no, <laughs> some very rare no, Ming no, no, Dynasty no, no, kind no, of no, coin. No. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, yeah, I'm just taking old coins from right. the ones before they changed over to the new currencies. All I the see. old coins, because my research, if somebody was actually wants to debate me on this, but it is my research is pretty accurate, mm-hmm. is that the real dollar value of the metal on those coins are nearly 100% now. Ah, that's interesting. And you're talking about the coins before the latest Malaysian coin Yes, I mean, all the old metal, the, which was nickel, copper ah, coins. Yeah. The, if you count the value of copper and nickel, it is uh, for 10 cents and 20 cents, 5 cents, it is nearly, it's up into 90% wow. of its, of its <laughs> face value. Chang, thank God. I, I have a big bunch of that. and I Keep need, it. Yeah, I, I nearly went to the bank and changed it for notes actually. <laughs> Thanks to you. I'm, I'm gonna keep it. Because so there so that means is that in the if say market crashes, you can still use those to just trade. I understand. Because they, they were that's one of the ways people in the past traded. Yeah, they trade based on barter based on the metallic value of coins. Yeah. Right. So where do you uh I have so many questions, right? But I think to start off where do you see the current fiat system, right? Because at least from where I stand, I don't think that there's going to be all-out collapse. It's going to be more of a combination or some sort of merging with the crypto world uh, to produce something. I new. don't know. So you no no clue. I, I don't know. Right. Uh, this if you don't know, yeah. which is where I am in. Yeah. You know, there's no prediction of where it's going to go. Right. Um, if you don't know, the best thing you do is to um have either a wide net mm-hmm. right. and also learn to live in a situation that you're not dependent on that system. I see. Right. So I think that's a very good advice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, just one of the books about wealth building millionaire next door mm-hmm. and that hasn't changed is you learn to be defensive in your spending. Mm. You don't spend so much. Mm. You know, I don't drive a expensive car. I mean, I have to drive a, Toyota Estima because I have kids. Yeah, but other than that, I don't drive any uh, Mercedes or, or an Audi or, or, you know, or mm-hmm. Ashton Martin. I'm not a car person. Okay, all right. And so I live in a life where I don't have to spend that much. The most expensive item in my house, maybe the outside of my cars, is maybe some of the stuff I collect, the books. But even then, they're not expensive, yeah. and 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 uh, I don't. Uh, and the jewels that I got as gifts for our family. During, I see. You know, so you said that that comes naturally to you. It's always been like that. Thrifty lifestyle. Yeah. I I think a thrifty lifestyle has been right. pretty natural for me. I don't need to. Uh, uh, the most expensive I ever spent on a meal outside of my wedding dinner uh-huh. uh, it was on an individual meal. It's never been more than a. A hundred, few hundred. Okay. For me, my wife. I mean, we're not the type that goes around. The most expensive, I think, was uh, was when we were dating. Okay. I went to. <laughs> of course. I think I took her to the Top Hat restaurant to for Valentine's Day. I see. And that was the most expensive. Yeah. Thing. So, what about people who don't have the inclinations that you have? Yeah. What would you say to them? Like, how would you give some advice? Control yourself. Actually, I wanted to tease out something, MJ, from him right. related to your question. You right. know, we had this conversation, Chang, and you were like, um, people were like complaining, hey, we don't have enough money, uh, we don't get enough income. And remember, we the, the conversion actually converged towards 
hey, go work in Alaska or something. Remember that advice you're giving? Go go find a job where you can get better income. And you don't have to spend a lot of money. Yeah. Ooh, so sorry. Well, My Google sorry. woke up. <laughs> I don't know why I woke up. Okay, well, yeah. the point being is, is that I... I I, especially for people in the young, young who have no attachment category, um, I can't, I, I cannot uh, think, I, I have, those who are in debt mm-hmm. when they're young, outside of college debts, mm-hmm. I don't understand why, <laughs> how you can get there, All right, unless you have a lavish lifestyle. Where you are going out, uh, I don't know. I mean, you spend a bit too much time on the massage parlors. I like to joking <laughs> say. But other than that, I, what are you doing? I mean, in Malaysia, our our life style is actually still pretty cheap. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's right. Yeah, you, you can for a for a guy who uh, let's just say unattached guy or a girl, you get your first paycheck is what three thousand, uh, two thousand five. Okay, let's just say. Worst case scenario, those say who are working in labor. Uh-huh. Let's say you work for uh, Alam Flora or those. You're maybe on a daily wage or something. Yeah, yeah. and you're getting about a thousand two, six hundred, a thousand two. Fine. Um, how many of those are working, uh, um, are living by themselves, have to pay for rent? Most of them will be provided, I think, right, workers, uh, workers, uh, hostel accommodation. Yeah, well, so okay, so you don't have to pay rent. Yeah. All right, you got, um, so you have to spend it on food. How much is on food? How, how much are you given for food by these things? Not not that much. Yeah. Actually, you don't have to pay for food that much. Yeah. So live off Maggie Me or Indomie for a whole month and just put an egg inside. I mean, there's, uh, you could save quite a lot. <laughs> I, I think, frankly, if uh, a person right out of college who isn't, who has no debts, if you are not saving at least 10%, I would recommend you go oh, further up to 50% of your monthly income if you're in your, if it's a first job, if you're in early 20s, unattached, if you are not saving your money already and learning to save and learning to discipline yourself to save so early already, then... You you shouldn't you can't complain to me. <laughs> you you complaining to me is one of those where I just go like, um, if you're not willing to go this step, yeah. To me, it feels like you're not going to the step. If you have say, oh, if you complain to me saying, oh, my mom, I have to pay for my mom's uh, medical bills, I have this and that, fine. Then maybe at that point, you should maybe talk to a financial consultant about working out right. some of your debts and bills so you can work it out, or talk to your boss about. Getting into um, uh, into ways to help you get your, make your payments out, mm. or or whatever. I mean, I know it it it's heartless, but sometimes not being yeah. able, not paying for those bills. I think what makes it uh, particularly difficult for people, especially in their twenties, especially is uh, is peer pressure. I no, I've I actually had this talk with one of my friends. Mm-hmm. Because I personally feel, okay, one of the contra- contributing factors is pure pressure, but the social pressures, yes. You're right, right. The other, I feel, is also the our education system has kind of failed them. Mm. Right. They haven't taught them financial education. I mean, it, the globally, 
one of the reasons why I feel that there just hasn't been enough good investment is, or people are not taught investment properly is they've never been, there's never been any financial education in their classes. Mm. How to balance checkbooks, how to, how to uh, get, um, how to look at uh, your uh, finances, how to make sure you have enough. I mean, all these things are just, uh, such a critical skill. Mm. And yet, we have, um, we, uh, I don't even want to rile on race and say in right, ways right. we have, uh, we have moral classes. I'm like, well, we also have Chinese also teaching kids <laughs> how to freaking, uh, the Chinese schools are teaching the kids, um, certain other classes, which I think are not useful either. Right. Mm. So it's, it's not about race. It's about what are we, what do we want our children to do, survive? Yeah. Right. What do we want them to grow up and learn and having the ability to, have at least a balanced financial, at least a background to at least handle their finances when they get out of right. going to schools or whatever. That's already, that should be something we need to have. So let me present this situation, which I think is, uh, is pretty common, especially in my age group. Mm -hmm. um, so let's say the guy or the girl knows how to do basic math, right? They know uh, balancing their books, knowing what goes in, what comes out, saving rates and all that. But one complaint I hear, and this uh, whether it's a complaint, I will leave it to you. But uh, certainly for me, is what they say is, yeah, I get all that, but then I get pressure, for example, from my family to buy a house, yeah. which will eat up a huge portion of their savings, especially if you're going to take a huge, you know, multiple six-figure loans on it. Why are their parents telling them to, why is their family telling and giving them pressure to buy a house? That's a good question. John, you want to answer this? <laughs> I mean, I, I, especially for people your age right, group, right. Uh, your certain wealth and group and stuff like that. You, um, I would think that this is not a situation of uh, pressure, as in it's a situation of of not being trained to think, mm. being told this is the way when you should be okay. Uh, it should be all right, mom, dad. This will bring me into this much debt. Mm. How am I going to pay for this? How are we going to get for this? Mm. You should be talking to your, those pressuring you this. All right. How will I pay for this out of my salary? Mm. Well, I'm willing to talk about this, but I need to figure this out. It's going to be my, it's going to be my money that's going to be taken out. So they should be discussing with their families about it. And if they can negotiate an amount saying, well, I can't afford for this with my salary right now. Mm -hmm. yep. And I'm not going to, and I don't know how am I going to get my, my uh, payments. And, and frankly, I want to, uh, I want to save up some money also for investment. So mom, dad, or say auntie, uncle, what, what, what do you think I should do? Mm. Can we work it out? Can you pay for some of it? Or should I not pay for it? I mean, if, if they're still pressuring you and they say you got to get a house or if they do it because they want you out to get some independence, and I can understand that. Right. Mm -hmm. They want you out of the house so they can gain some independence. Maybe that's, it's, it's maybe because they don't know how to communicate better. Right. Mm. They don't know how to communicate better. I mean, I, uh, that, so they, they don't know how to say, well, they are not educated enough. Their parents are not educated enough to say, Look, we're not, we know, we know you need to build up some financial strength or have some financial uh, pressure on yourself to, to, to get out, to, to have some stability, to have some independence. 
So, uh, what can you, so you you can you can't use us mm. to rely on to to make sure you get um, yourself into it. So maybe instead of saying, uh, "I don't want to buy a house," what you should do? How about I move out, mom, dad? I'll, I'll go take a student hostel for a year or something mm. like that. I'll or I'll rent, yeah, or I'll rent like a student hostel for a few months, a year, or stuff like that, and I'll pay my way. Mm. I'll come visit during the weekends. That's about it, you know. And and now, especially if you got a job, why can't you? Uh, if you're getting paid with that two, three thousand, I mean, geez, that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> twice what I started with. <laughs> I started a salary, yeah, uh, and uh, and. If you and and you and student hostel, my my understanding, the prices haven't really increased that much. I think much. probably a hundred fifty to two hundred a month. I think if you get yeah. out, yeah. I think a, a house in the PJ area for a room hundred sixty square feet is about four hundred ringgit. Four hundred. Yeah, yeah ringgit. but what about? But why not? Why do you need to have that when you say exactly. your work is? If your work is in KL, why can't you stay in say like say outskirts that are have a like like Kalanajai, not Kalanajai, uh Someplace near LRT, Abangi, Abangi, those Kaja, area. Yeah, yeah th- those. As long as there's a there's a public transport that gets you into the city, that a reasonably stable public transport that you can get there, that you can rely on. Yeah. Every day. Do it. Yeah. You're young. <laughs> the, 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 that is one of the things you're gonna have to deal with when you're young. Yeah. Having to deal with public transports. I mean, it's it's it. If you do those things and you're complain about that, you have to ride. That you have to get up at six o'clock in the morning to ride the public transports. <laughs> I'm. I can't. You're not getting much sympathy from me. <laughs> I got up at four thirty when I was working for SAP because <laughs> I had morning duties and my morning shift was six wow, in the wow. morning. Oh, I volunteered for it because it, it allowed. It would give me more money. It give me more higher promotional rating mm-hmm. uh and it it also meant i can leave theoretically at 3 30 in the ah. afternoon because i was doing what we call a transitional uh, shift i see because i had to take over from american uh, shift yeah but um that that was theory the reality was two out of three days i was still late because i had meetings trainings that had to attend and stuff like that but still i volunteered for it so i could have those hours and I got those benefits for those. Mm. You know, they they provided for it, and it, it worked out for me in the end. Yeah, but so I could do that because I was in my early twenties mm. doing that, and and I could and anybody who says I can't, I don't get enough sleep and do not work it out, <laughs> figure it out. I know it's. There are so many problems being told of about individuals nowadays mm-hmm. that we all have to go through that we're all dealing with uh, depression, uh, um, hormonal imbalance, um, this or that. Instagram pressure and all that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't want to talk about social media. That's a different, <laughs> that is a different type of poison in my opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, uh, I just say to people, I know, I understand what you think there are pressures, but some things you just have to learn to ignore. You mm. just have to put aside and say, at this point in my life, I don't need to have this in my concern. Mm. I am doing it for myself to make myself financially more independent, mm-hmm. stable, mm-hmm. 
and also for my own personal health. Yeah. Everything else, you don't need to be successful. You just need to be in a path towards success. And the only way to do that for those who are young and is hard work. Yeah. Nobody, not every, for every Bill Gates, there's, uh, there is about, uh, there's a million other people who worked their way up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and nobody hears about them. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was the book, uh, Millionaire Next Door. And I think today there's a new book kind yeah. of like a, called Millionaire Every Day, I believe. And it's the same thing. Yeah, I think it's eight out of 10 people kind of started from the bottom, no inheritance, but millionaire. Yeah. It's, 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 for every guy who says, oh, you could have inherited the money, I can tell you one example. There's a, God, what's his name? I think it was, I recently studied uh, the who was the biggest Vegas whale okay. that ever existed. His name was, I think, Fang, I can't remember. He was, he inherited millions and he basically wasted it all away about 300 million USD spent on wow. just gambling. <laughs> In Vegas, and he now he's in his fifties, and now and he to me he's an example of a of a of a warning, mm. you know. And I I my study of history tells people told me one thing: no such thing as uh, elite continually being elite. All right, can you guys name me a company that's been around for over a hundred and fifty years? Not many, I think. Uh, Coca Cola, I think, is one hundred eighteen. Oh, still less than that. One hundred eighteen, I think. There's no company. That, I mean, there's it, companies either learn to transition with the times or they don't. Technology mm. does have its own disruption ability. Right. Yeah. Like uh, the famous one is everybody talks about buggy whip makers going out of business, which was true. Mm-hmm. But other businesses that were involved with the carriage industries learned to adapt. So some because like. Um, those who made the wheels and the ball bearings so that the the wheels could be uh, a, a very smooth drive on the on the wagons and and, and stuff like that those companies adapted some mm. of them continue and made money during the time when cars became popular that's right have you heard of a studebaker mm-hmm. that was a company that transitioned from ball bearing car man, uh, wheel manufacturings into making their own cars mm. and they survived for 80 years as a car manufacturer mm. So would you consider, I think, the the Rockefeller Empire, to or be, even the Rothschilds Empire? I, think. I don't know about Rothschilds, but the yeah. the Rockefeller Empire to be one where okay, I know it's technically it's arguable, but they they split into many different. You got your Exxon's and mm-hmm. Chevron's. Yeah, 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 yeah. And would I know you, it's all owned by the Rockefellers, right. and there, there's inherited wealth and everything. Right. Are the children still doing the business of their parents? Mm. Right. Okay, so before we go back to investing, and I've, I'm enjoying this conversation so far, uh, just one more point about personal finance. So the book Millionaire Next Door and Everyday Millionaire and all these kind of things. I mean, uh, but back to that point about you know the Rockefellers. Right, right. For every Rockefeller you know, mm-hmm. there is uh, Carnegie's, there's oh, many other fan- families that right. has already lo- right. that lost their wealth. Yeah. The uh, Medici's. Uh, yeah. There is a, for every one that survived, a mm-hmm. hundred died. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, no, you just can't rely on inherited wealth. It's yeah. your it's your own ability to build that wealth. I agree, completely to, agree. To, to get there. So speaking of that that way of looking at statistics, um, one of the criticisms of the book Millionaire Next Door is that, and I I'm kind of on the fence of this on this, but one of the criticisms is that is of survivorship bias. That 
they're, they're basically saying, okay, here are all these millionaires and here's what they did that they have in common. Therefore, what they did in common is, is good. But some of the critics would say that, well, we will have to measure those who did the same thing but are actually not millionaires and what's the percentage of that. And then we can say, okay, okay these things. That, that's do. fine. Then right. if... What then I will ask him is that then is there another technique to wealth mm. other than what these right. guys did? Mm. If this is the road to wealth and there are other roads and people went that road to become wealthy, like say um, in the millionaire deck store, the habits were thrifty, yes, yes. Uh, work their own business and basically learn to invest their money or at least save their money very well and put into areas that they could that uh, and and then they lived to they they saved up and lived be, below their means. That, yep. that was the real thing. That was the millionaire next door yep. thing, secret. Um, now, fine. That's the de facto way of making money, saving money, and becoming a millionaire. Now, what is then the opposite of that? And how can you then make money from that style, mm. which is becoming overspending money living way beyond your means and then maybe theoretically getting massive amount of contracts i mean okay fine name me one person name me people who have accomplished wealth that way i i can name one person off the top of my head that's joe low <laughs> right now yes. yes yeah and he did basically overspend he and then he got major contracts and and, and Another guy I could think of is also involved in this guy. We work. Uh, what's yeah, the guy's yeah. name? Um, Adam Newman. Right? Adam Newman. Yeah. yeah. Basically, okay. Maybe the, they 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 um they oh, oh, they used a lot of money to get themselves into influence and positions of power. That's fine. Um, but how many of those people went that way, and how yeah. many other people who went that same route and did not make money that way? Yeah. How right. many of those? We for every Jolo, I think there was. I think you've heard of stories of all these other guys who's That's right. who partied all day and spent mom and dad's money to make yeah. more money, but yeah. really wasted it away partying all day, getting the influence yeah. that they never. Really yeah, used. I think the number of the number of success cases is way lower in those cases compared yeah, to. Th that's why I'm just saying it's not a survivorship bias. That's mm -hmm. it, that to me is like one of those uh, arguments where they're just looking to find something negative, yeah. Yeah. where it's not useful because. Yeah. It you scientifically, if you look at it from a logic point, is that you need to have an opposite viewpoint that of success that can then be used to, as, as a, yeah. to 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 then be used to as a comparison to this to path. Yeah. Since we theoretically we can look at the opposite way, which is to which instead of saving money, we overspend. Mm. Uh, instead of uh, being disciplined with our work, you just party all day. Mm. Fine. Um, is that really a conducive lifestyle? I mean, most people can, uh, uh, anybody, it's like saying conventional wisdom. That is, there is, everybody will tell you, no, that's not going to, that's <laughs> not going to make you life. That's not going to make you wealthy. That's not going to give you financial stability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That will make you turn you into that guy who gambled all his money yeah, away. Yeah. You know, yeah, so, yeah. You know, speaking of that, uh, I, I know we're supposed to go to the investment portion, but I just have this one more question, which <laughs> yeah. is that, do you think it's actually dangerous for someone to make a lot of money, like a lot of money in a short space of time? 
Because in theory, you're like, hey, you know, he made a lot of money. He's compounded annual growth rates, I know, in a million percent, whatever it is, right? In the, you know, 200 million in two years, for example. But do you think that there are actually psychological drawbacks to that sort of situation? Yeah, there could be. Uh, it's not a perfect, uh, it will always fail because one thing they never have if they've never faced failure. Mm-hmm. So when the time comes, they've never known what is the things they need to do to go around failure. Like um, the, uh, I looked at it was uh, my financial failure was my first business, mm-hmm. the, the events mm-hmm. management company. Yeah. Half a million dollars. That's not chump change. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that, that hurt. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, but then my next job, my next business didn't, uh, I didn't lose money because one thing I learned was, um, uh, okay, besides managing inventory, one thing I learned to do was grinding, mm-hmm. which is every day go in, do the work, grind out those repeat, hours, repeat, repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, get the successful habit, grind it out. I found I enjoyed it. How I many hours it. were you spending on average in the store? And I want, I want the listeners to hear this because a lot of people, who come to us think that investments is just a ticket out of... First of year, yeah. I spent an average of uh, 12 to twelve hours plus, okay. maybe 14 hours on the store. Okay. And this is also when my wife is taking care of the kids. That was one of the other reasons why I sold the store because I was just spending too much time. Okay. And there, I mean, family between... It was between family and store. Mm. Family came first for me. Great choice. Right. Uh, look, I'm sure there are many more lessons on entrepreneurship, on personal finance, but we're going to go back to the investing question. I think this will be the last question, but it's a big question, right? Mm-hmm. What are you looking at these days? What are the industries? How are you positioning your portfolio? If you don't mind sharing um, stocks you're looking at. Um, frankly, I am more, I, I don't, I, it's whatever, as I say, interests me, whatever mm-hmm. the research takes sure. me, wherever that rabbit hole. In this case, gambling was a is a rabbit hole I went into. Do I think I will invest in Genting? Not really. Mm. Uh, do I think there are other industries that I can put into tech? Yeah, there's some tech interesting stuff. Uh, there are other people who, uh, John Trivel, I think is a is somebody I really highly recommend. He does. Uh, he's still into the studying. Actually, we're, 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 yeah, we're trying to get him on the podcast. Yeah, we, we know each other, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah. would recommend him because, and, and uh, also talk to Alvin and the guys at Equities Track. Because they, they, these guys do the grinding of the work. I'm finding myself, I what I found was um, at this point in my life, the money is good enough that I could, I don't need to put so much effort into it. So I got bored and I'm doing other things mm. uh, in my life right now. So, um uh, I'm more defensive, I guess. I see on my portfolios, which is uh, less uh, risky, uh, more dividends based. Uh-huh. But even then, I still park into what I know industries that are boring, but don't uh, the that are still in that will still grow in its own path. Mm. Um, tech is always interesting. Mm-hmm. IT tech, if you know where it's going. Uh, I, I, the one where you did your doofu recommendation, yes. they instantly, some idiot in the forum, in the YouTube pages was already saying that, oh, the 
uh, hard disk drives are yeah. amazing oh, yeah. in the string, and I just went. <laughs> no, even when I actually explained it in the video, and the guy still said hard disk sucks. Oh, yeah, God. it's not as bad as our Asia one though. Oh yeah, Asia one. They, they thought we were being paid by Tony. So yeah, that's that. I will say this about Air Asia: it fluctuates, and if you, because the, it, the money, the price fluctuates so much throughout the decades. Yeah, you can make money by investing in the fluctuation. Yeah. I don't embrace volatility as a friend. I mean, Tony Fernandez is is uh he is his own unique character. He has his own way of doing business. Yeah. I just like uh Donald Trump, I don't like the guy. <laughs> you know, Tony Fernandez is not somebody I would ever really sit down and have a, a drink and talk about a subject because he's a charismatic in his own way, but I don't want to live his lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I don't like his lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I will never really want to be in his circle, okay. If I if I if I if I have a talk with him, it's most likely due to something we might have a mutual investment, uh, a business on. Mm, right. Other than that, stay away from my daughter. That's what I was talking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, look, I I I've really enjoyed this, and uh, but I think we have to, you know, we gotta go somewhere, so mm-hmm. uh, we gotta cut the pause a little bit short. Um, do you have any, um, do you have any, what was the, to end the podcast, what is the biggest lesson that you learned now investing over 30 decades that you would like to impart to all of us? Uh, boring is good. The grinding, as I said, the grinding, this is, which is go do the research one step at a time, go through, read a few dozen portfolios or a few dozen, um, mm-hmm. um, uh, reports, uh, reports, Go through the businesses and study it. Study the industry and go look, pick the best. Uh, one way you could, one, as I say, one theoretical uh, way of investment, I guess, for if people want to do it, is pick one industry. Mm-hmm. Palm oil, oil and gas. Uh, electronics, semiconductor. Or say FMCG. Whatever. Yeah. Go look at all the companies in the industry right. and look for the most efficient based on the numbers. Look for the ones that, and maybe find the one with the hidden value, like who has a management that is really hungry to for success, and are are doing some things really new uh, that's outside of the industry that would disrupt the industry. Or look for the ones who have the most efficient processes in the industry mm. that have management that are still actively working every day to be uh, uh, efficient. I mean, Southwest Airlines is an example of. There was nothing. They they didn't really do anything special. Yeah. Everybody looked at it and just say, "Oh, well, they were amazing." But I just kind of look at it. They didn't do anything special other than they just basically did a very good managing of their products mm. and, and and of their services. And they had a good culture of people working together. They had this this company attitude. There was they didn't have any new special product. They didn't have any new technology. They didn't have anything other than just yeah. the. They were just better at doing their business than everybody else yeah that's mm-hmm. all yep. and that one so what if you just choose choose and pick one industry try it out look at it air asia is one of those where it's it's one of those where it by the numbers it is arguably the best out of the airline industry right now we have in our country which is not saying much but it is still <laughs> okay mm-hmm. yeah uh, but I'm not. This is not a recommendation for Air of Asia. Course, so far. Yeah. This is definitely not a recommendation yeah. for Air Asia. I'm just saying, pick the best. 
That's yeah. one possible investment strategy you can do. All right. So Great. there you hear it, guys. Uh, pick an industry, grind, and then pick the best as an investment. Uh, Chang, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking forward to having you back here again. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually I'll ask uh, the guests uh, where they can find you, but since uh, social media is a yeah. form of poison, he's, he's kind of anti-social so media. You yeah. cannot, you cannot find Chang. Yeah. Uh, right. If you want to contact me, I guess uh, call these guys. They'll call. They have my number. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, you know, thank you for being on the podcast. And guys, I hope you enjoyed this very illuminating podcast. And I'll uh, see you in the next one. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Okay.